morning, Canberra, and welcome to your Science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to have you in the studio for us. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. It's uh, always a pleasure to hear all that fantastic music and the latest news out of Ireland uh, around there. But uh, now we delve into the world of science, and as always, there's a whole bunch going on. Science is uh, dominating our news at the moment, with, of course, news of vaccines coming in and everyone getting vaccinated and all the modelling being done by the Doherty Institute and that sort of stuff. Have you had your vaccine yet here in Canberra? I got my first jab uh, last week, which was very exciting. Slightly sore arm, but nothing more than that to show for it. Um, but once I get my second jab in just a couple of weeks' time, I'll be fully vaccinated, which is very exciting indeed and helps us take those next steps uh, to what the Doherty Institute has modelled that we can start moving towards in this country and uh, hopefully finding some great uh, opportunities for us to, to open up and uh, learn how we can uh, live in a safe way around COVID-19. But in today's show, I didn't want to focus too much on COVID-19 because uh, we get that in our regular news and fuzzy logic is time for something a little bit different. So today I well and truly have something that's a little bit different for you folks. Uh, and uh, it comes in the form of some prizes that were announced uh, recently. And uh, when we hear prizes in science, we think of uh, the Nobel Prizes, of course. Uh, but these aren't the Nobel Prizes. These are the stories of the Ig Nobel Prizes. The, the Ig Nobel, indeed. And, and look, not, uh, not casting any aspersions about the winners, because the winners certainly celebrate winning these prizes. But it is for research that's a little bit different. It's not recognising the people most outstanding in their field in terms of uh, scientific amazingness or prowess or anything like that, but it's recognising people for putting together research that makes you laugh and then makes you think. So it's those funny bits of science research that uh, give us a bit of a giggle, and a giggle's what we always need at, uh, at uh, uh, times like these. But uh, But there is some genuine science that goes behind it. And uh, the first uh, prize that I wanted to explore was the Ig Nobel Prize for uh, chemistry. Now, chemistry is quite an interesting one. We've got the, the matching Nobel Prize for chemistry, which was uh, won this year. But the Ig Nobel Prize for chemistry was given to a panel of scientists who've been chemically analysing the air inside movie theatres. And why were they doing that, you ask? Well, they were trying to determine whether the odours produced by the audience could indicate what was going on in the movie. Uh, in fact, what they were specifically looking at was the levels of violence, sex, antisocial behaviour, drug use and bad language in the movie that the audience is watching. Now, it seems ridiculous. Seems ridiculous. Why on earth would we want to be investigating this sort of thing? But there's some good scientific thinking behind it. Now, the, uh, the scientists involved in this actually published a study called Proof of Concept Study, testing human volatile organic compounds as tools for age classification of films. And uh, another paper called Cinema Data Mining, The Smell of Fear. So how did they arrive at this point? Well, that's the, uh, the, the real interesting science part here. So it was a team of researchers from the Max Planck Institute over in Germany. And... Uh, 
They've been doing some work uh, prior to this, uh, looking at the uh, Amazon rainforest. And they're actually analysing the volatile organic compounds over there. So they're the compounds that are given off, can be detected in the air uh, with what's going on. And uh, so they've been looking at uh, those compounds over there to analyse what they could see in the environment. Um, And uh, at some point during this fieldwork, it became clear that uh, the scientists themselves were actually giving off similar trace gases to what they were trying to find. And so they thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder where this is all all coming from. And so they went back uh, to Germany and tested the atmosphere around 30,000 football fans in a stadium and uh, found similar chemicals over there. And um, uh, that uh, showed that... um, the the that yes they could test those chemicals but the biosphere in general was much more important so they could keep going in the amazon but what they found by testing the air around this stadium but that was that there were spikes in particular chemicals in trace chemicals at particular times during the match and it was times of particular tension during the match and if you think about uh, football matches folks there are definitely moments of tension indeed i don't know if you watched the afl grand final last night there were there were definite moments of tension in there throughout the the second and third quarter until it became much more relaxing <laughs> into the to the latter part of the third quarter and the fourth quarter when the demons ran away with it but uh, but during those stressful periods which happen a lot more in a low scoring um match like soccer or European football over there, uh, they were detecting tension in the air, quite literally. And so they thought, well, this is interesting. And and so they looked at these volatile organic compounds and the extent and composition of them expelled um, into the air. And they realised that... um, you know, this this is something that's impacted by emotions. Our our exhaust, what we breathe out, what we emit from our body, is is uh, tempered and changed by our emotional state. And so they thought, well, this is this is interesting around a football stadium, but uh, not much use there. But maybe we could use it in another situation, maybe in cinemas where there's um there's a lot going on. And they thought that potentially they could have people watch films in the cinema and detect the levels of these compounds coming off people and use it as a way to classify films. So if uh, this film emits um, high levels of uh, the uh, stress and tension compounds due to what's going on on the screen, then potentially that should be you know M15 plus type film. But if there's low levels, we can make this one PG and that sort of thing. And so they started to look at it in the cinema cinemas um they thought uh, they couldn't reliably predict much there was one chemical called isoprene uh, which they felt was able to predict the 0 6 and 12 age classifications uh, for a range of film categories and audiences so that's the classifications over there in europe um but overall, not too much success. But it was a great learning piece. And uh, what the scientists are really finding is that the uh, our breath is our window on our state of mind. Or as one of the scientists put it, we're venting our emotions like exhaust, which I think is a great, great way to put it indeed. So there you go. So that was the Ig Nobel Prize in Chemistry going to scientists studying the composition of airs air rather not airs air in our cinemas to see whether they could use it for classification meanwhile let's move on to the uh, Ig Nobel Prize for economics now and uh, that one went to 
uh, a scientist, Pavlo Blavatsky, uh, and he was doing some studies on politicians and discovered that the obesity of a country's politicians may actually be a good indicator of that country's corruption. Yes, folks, the fat cat in the politician sense might be a, quite a good indication of uh, where they're getting their money from. Yeah, what he did was he actually analysed 299 facial images of cabinet ministers from uh, as post-Soviet states. So over there in Europe, places like Armenia, Russia, Ukraine, uh, all those post-Soviet states there, and looked at those in office in 2017. Uh, from that image, uh, a computer uh, estimated the uh, body mass index for those um, people using algorithms and uh, then uh, had a look at that. And they found that the uh, minister's body mass index uh, is highly correlated, that's highly correlated, with conventional measures of corruptions. Uh, and corruption is uh, measured based on perception surveys among foreign experts. Um so there were five measures that are looking at for perceived corruption there, which is the Basel Institute of Governance, the Basel Anti-Money Laundering Index, and the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. Um, and so, yeah, they found that correlation there. The other, the other interesting thing was that the estimated BMI of the ministers in the data set was generally quite high, which potentially is showing um, grand political corruption across many of the uh, politicians in the post-Soviet states. Um, but what they did find was uh, the least corrupt uh, post-Soviet states in there were Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia and Georgia, while the most corrupt were Turkmenistan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And so the professor there is proposing that potentially his BMI method uh, for looking at what's going on in uh, these politicians could be used retrospectively and potentially in places where foreign experts have limited access. So uh, a methodology here that could be applicable across countries as photographic data of top public officials are relatively accessible so we can see what they look like and then determine how corrupt they likely are. Now, I'd definitely like to see some greater exploration of data on this one because it's certainly only in the post-Soviet states and uh, we don't want anyone uh, judging our politicians by our weight or anything like that over here in Australia at the moment. But certainly an interesting study and an interesting correlation. But uh, as always in science, you have to ask the question, is it uh, correlation or causation here? Is a corrupt politician, is their corruptness causing them to get bigger? Or is it more likely that uh, larger politicians will be corrupt? Or is it just a uh, coinkydink that that's happening there? Mm, good questions around that one. We'd have to explore that further. I mean, the other thing you can also explore further is um, whether the uh, politicians are just smart enough to not be corrupt. That sort of thing. Potential. At least over here in Australia, we do have a strong democracy where we can vote people in or out based on how we see their behaviours. All right, enough on politicians. This isn't a politics show. This is a science show. We're going to have a short break with some music, though. And when we come back, it's into more of these scientific prizes from the Ig Nobel's
Robbie Williams there with If I Only Had a Brain. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. The time is now 11.19 and it's uh, Sunday the 26th of September. What a lovely day outside if you do get the chance to take your exercise out there. Make sure you do while you can in this beautiful spring sunny weather. Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're exploring the world of science as we always do, and uh, this week it is the Ig Nobel Prizes. That's right, not the Nobels, but the Ig Nobels for scientific research that makes you laugh and then makes you think. The next piece that I want to follow up on is, unsurprisingly, the Peace Prize. Yeah, normally not uh, so scientific in the Nobel world, but in this case, it is a, a scientific prize. The Ig Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to uh, three scientists, Ethan Besserus, Stephen Nowey, and David Carrier, who were testing the hypothesis that humans evolved beards to protect themselves from punches to the face. Now, it's an interesting idea because when you think of the creatures that we evolved from, they are a whole lot hairier than us in most parts. But uh, what does it mean in terms of our facial hair? Why did we keep that hair on our face? Um, And why is it only really on men too? Why do the blokes get uh, the monopoly over the beards you know, it's it's probably one of the features on us that's the most uh, sexually dimorphic. Um, some people consider it an uh, indicator of masculinity, social dominance. Um, it's been proposed to have a place in a human in a male contest between each other. Look, I'm saying this, and I have what I think is a look. I've I've got a mid range beard. It's it's no it's more than a, a bit of stubble, but it's no uh, full length uh, Max Gorn type uh, beard here. So you know. Somewhere in between those two. I'm, I'm not sure if that's reflective of my masculinity or not, but I won't go down this path. I'll follow what um, what the, the scientists have looked at um, in their, their paper, um, which was published in the Journal of Integrative Organ- Organismal Biology. And so they were they were observing that uh, this this very masculine like feature is consistent with the hypothesis that beards evolved to enhance fighting performance. Yes, enhance how well we can fight uh, by providing some sort of protection to vulnerable aspects of the face. You know, a fractured jaw, um, especially before we had uh, a medical system like we do now. That's uh, that's a pretty. A grave facial injury. You're going to have struggle to eat, struggle to continue on if you've got a broken jaw. And so the scientists thought that, well, maybe the beard's there to protect the skin and the bones of the face when human males fight each other by absorbing, dispersing the energy of blunt impact. And so to test this, they started with a model. And in this case, not a a theoretical model, but a physical model. They modelled human bone tissue uh, using short fibre epoxy composite bone analogue, so something that's quite like our bone, covered it in sheepskin samples from domestic sheep to mimic human beards. And while sheep fleece isn't necessarily a perfect match from uh, human beers, the volume of hair in the fleece did kind of approximate the volume of a full beard. Um which isn't likely to be the same for other species. So uh, they thought the sheep was the best analogue for the human beard in there. And 
they did trim it too. So the hair of the sheepskin sample was trimmed, uh, plucked, uh, and for some even plucked completely, uh, or for others left furred in, in all the glory, about eight centimetres to, to best mimic those different beard states of men. And then to test, they did a drop weight impact test. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Drop weight impact test. Yep. Drop a weight onto the uh, test area and see what happens. And they did it from various heights too, you know, simulating punches of different uh, different force. What they found was the uh, furred samples, the, the full furry ones, absorbed the impact more slowly, providing more protection than the plucked or the sheared samples. So they did show that uh, hair is indeed capable of significantly reducing the force of impact from a blunt strike, absorbing energy and therefore reducing the, uh, the breakage of the bones in the jaw right there. So if the same's true for humans, having a full beard could help us protect vulnerable parts of our face, such as the jaw, uh, from damaging punches. And uh, it also helps, you know, in terms of reducing cuts and bruises and that sort of thing to the face, they reckon. So there you go, folks. If you are worried about uh, breaking your jaw, getting bashed up, uh, and uh, you have the ability to, you can grow a beard for some extra protection. Uh, but, you know, potentially you could... Uh, solve your problem in other ways too rather than just physical dominance around uh, what's going on there um, yeah but uh, but a very interesting study indeed by those scientists there looking at uh, looking at the beards and from um, beards and, and talking about fairy sheep we're going to move on to uh, another animal now or well, in fact there's a couple more animals that feature in the Ig Nobels I'll quickly uh, cover this one which is the biology prize which is given to uh, three scientists Suzanne Schertz, Robert Eklund and Just van der Weyer uh, who analysed cat communications. Yes they did uh, look at the purring, they looked at chirping, chattering, trilling, tweedling, murmuring, meowing, moaning, squeaking, hissing, yowling, howling, growling and many other modes of cat-to-human communication. They published it in uh, a range of papers. So this is not just short-term research. This is long-term research. And I love the names of these papers. They just get better and better. They start off with a comparative acoustic analysis of purring in four cats, and then a phonetic pilot study of vocalisations in three cats, a phonetic pilot study of chirp, chatter, tweet and tweedle in three domestic cats, a study of human perception of intonation in domestic cat meows, and then finally, my favourite, melody in human cat communication, meowsic, origins past, present and future. Yes, there's nothing like a terrible pun in the name of your paper. What did these scientists do? Well, these Swedish scientists... Uh, Logged differences in the acoustic variations in purring uh, between these domesticated cats, exploring variations in their vocalisation, uh, and then trying to classify it, put it together into what they were hearing. Um, and what they found was that uh, they were able to show that the vocalisations of cats in different situations could actually be identified by humans is they played 12 recordings of cats meowing while either waiting for food, waiting for the vet, uh, or waiting for the vet, rather, and humans were significantly better than chance at determining which predicament 
the, each cat was in. So it suggests here that um, there might be more to human-cat communication than we think, and uh, there might actually be a bit going on. They're trying to communicate to us, and we can understand which I think is is just amazing, uh, indeed, and it's one of you know many studies that um, that have looked at communication in animals uh, and the different ways they can try and talk to us uh, through this. So it's a quite an impressive one, indeed. Um, as you say, my, my previous favourite study uh, around uh, animal communication was in uh, crows and ravens, and it actually found that uh, they had regional accents. Uh, so a crow from France sounded different to a crow from Britain, um, and, uh, and it was be able to be determined, uh, which I find uh, very impressive indeed. Uh, so there you go, some amazing animals around us um, and speaking of amazing animals, one more animal prize. This, the Ig Nobel Prize in Transportation. Yeah, not a, not a common Nobel category, but Ig Nobels like to make up their own categories. So this is the Ig Nobel in Transportation, which went to a big team of scientists uh, who are looking after rhinos. Yes, specifically the black rhino. And what they're looking at is uh, how to best transport the black rhino. Uh, because it's a solution to a very serious problem indeed, and that's the problem of poaching. Um, so at the moment across southern Africa, um, especially in South Africa itself, the wild black rhino population is, is under a big threat from poaching. Um, and to protect them, they often actually capture and relocate rhinoceros um, to, to uh, get them into an area away from poachers. It's also to, to share the genetic pool uh, across the population to ensure that any progeny that happen uh, are viable. They're making a strong population uh, as they move them about. And But the only thing with moving rhinos about is it's not necessarily a simple task. Um, it's rugged terrain that the rhinos live in, and uh, that makes transportation by truck, which would probably be the simplest option, uh, quite difficult in that sort of situation. So these rhinos are airlifted. Um, and when they're airlifted, uh, they use opioids to tranquilize the rhinos. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of complications in there um, with using uh, opioids to tranquilize them. Uh, hypoventilation, hypoxemia, not enough oxygen, or hypercapnia, too much CO2, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, acidemia, a buildup of acid in the blood. So there's all these different things that can happen when the rhino is knocked out. So scientists wanted to explore the ways that the rhinos are airlifted to see if uh, there were any particular ways that exacerbated the effects of these opioids uh, because obviously they're moving these rhinos around to help save them and the last thing you want to do is make things worse for these beautiful creatures if you are moving them about. And uh, as you can imagine... There's, there's not much research out there at the moment. Um, so the, the first uh, start in this study was to uh, start to collect that baseline of, um, of uh, how the rhinos are collected. And so they uh, studied the uh, rhinos who were suspended by their feet from a crane. 
um, because that mimics the position they would be in if they were transported under a helicopter. So that's quite literally, imagine a rhino trussed up, feet together, uh, being held from uh, a crane upside down right there in front of them. Um, and to compare this, to have something to compare to, they studied rhinos suspended on their side, um, so just lying down on one side to mimic the way they're normally transported. Um, so, yeah, suspended upside down versus on their side. And scientists, I don't know what you'd expect out there, listeners, which way would be better. I feel like lying on the side seems like a safer option, seems like a better way. I feel like if I was being transported, I'd be one to be lying on my side rather than strung up by my feet and arms. But the results they found was that uh, rhinos who were suspended by their feet, actually fared slightly better. And uh, the scientists proposed, well, the, the reason for this might be that uh, it helps with the positional effects of blood flow. Uh, so, in other words, the lower parts of the lung are getting lots of blood flow for gas exchange when the rhinos are on their side, uh, but the upper part of the lung uh, just isn't getting perfused well. Uh, so when a rhino is uh, hanging upside down, it's kind of just like standing up, except upside down um, and so the lung is equally perfused rather than uh, the effects of lying on their side um, they've also seen that when rhinos are on their side too long on their sternum especially uh, that there's muscle damage and myopathy because they're so heavy uh, and there's no pressure on their legs other than the, um, uh, than the sense of the strap around their ankle uh, when they're upside down so it's, it's quite an interesting study, and it suggests that uh, the heart system, too, of the immobilised black rhinos is no more compromised by suspension from the feet for 10 minutes than it is by lying on their side for 10 minutes. But, of course, uh, this is only the baseline study. There's still more work that needs to be done in this uh, because uh, helicopter translocation of black rhinos uh, usually takes a bit longer than 10 minutes. Um, so uh, they're going to continue to study this one further to make sure they continue to look after these beautiful creatures, our black rhinos. Um, but uh, what an interesting study indeed. And if you do get the chance, folks, check out some of the pictures associated with this because you do just see the rhino hanging upside down from its feet there. So the scientists there looking at um, rhinos and the best way to move them around Africa. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XFM. This is Community Radio in Canberra, and uh, we're also streaming online at 2xxfm.org.au. We're going to take a short break now, but we've still got some more Ig Nobel Prizes to go through. I want it just like that. And that was Crazy There by Katie Noonan. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XFM 98.3 on the dial. We are people-powered radio. And if you enjoy what you listen to here, then make sure to subscribe online to xxfm.org.au because your subscriptions do help keep us on the air. Make sure you tell them too that you listen to Fuzzy Logic when you subscribe because uh, we know there are a huge number of listeners out there that... Uh, uh, are joining us and uh, we thank you for your support. Now today on Fuzzy Logic we're going to be talking about uh, 
a range of different things. And we've been talking about the Ig Nobel Prizes and uh, all the stuff that's been going on there. And I've got a couple more prizes to cover here. Uh, we've gone through rhino transportation and me- measuring chemicals in cinemas. Uh, but now it's uh, the Ig Nobel Prize in Ecology. And that went to um, uh, some uh, European scientists who looked at chewing gum and uh, identified using genetic analysis different species of bacteria that reside in wads of discarded chewing gum stuck on pavements in various countries. Quite quite a strange little study here. What do you think they found from it? What were they looking for? Well, let's let's explore it further. Um, yeah, they were looking at the different bacteria that can be found in discarded chewing gum. And uh, so they collected 10 chewing gum samples from France, Germany. Uh, no, not Germany, Greece. I can't read. France, Greece, Spain, Turkey and Singapore. And with these 10 samples from each location, they froze them in a lab at minus 80 degrees and ground them down into a fine powder. And then from there, their analysis looked at the types and diversities of bacteria at different places in the world and at different locations within the wad of gum too, at the surface level, the intermediate and the bottom layers. So they also looked at the microbial succession from oral bacteria to environmental bacteria uh, that takes place in the chewing gum during the first weeks after its disposal. Uh, What they found, uh, as they reported in the journal Scientific Reports, was that oral bacteria persists for a surprisingly long period of time on wasted chewing gum. And uh, much of the bacteria they isolated from older gum has the potential to bioremediate the gum itself. So that's actually degrade it, um, which is quite interesting indeed. Um, But what's the point of it all? Well, they reckon that these long-lasting gum residues could be used for human genetic analysis in uh, further studies in both criminology and archaeology. So uh, basically seeing if they can identify the humans or at least identify something about the people that chewed the gum uh, in a long period of time. And I guess... uh, when we're talking about archaeology, gum isn't necessarily that old, but if they're identifying bacteria that sticks around on uh, these pieces of sugared... uh, Well, what is gum when it's done? That's a whole study in itself, isn't it? What is chewing gum made of? But if they're looking at uh, the bacteria sticking around on them, uh, then they could uh, then study that further in other items that they can find uh, around there. So lots of interesting studies there. While a little bit weird, there's lots of interesting implications that they find. Uh, But yeah, don't you hate it, though, when you do step on gum uh, around, uh, when you're just walking around and you just get that sticky gum on your shoe so frustrating so frustrating but i'm going to take it away i'm actually going to go away now and and explore what is chewing gum made of that's that's a question that i want to know and actually speaking of if you want to know questions we do have the opportunity to answer 
questions uh, that uh, you might not know the answer to through our Ask Fuzzy column. It goes live in uh, the Canberra Times every Sunday and uh, syndicated in other Fairfax papers. And if you have a question for us that you want to know, just email askfuzzy at zoho.com. That's askfuzzy, all one word, at zoho, Z-O-H-O dot com. And uh, we can try our best to answer your questions there in the Canberra Times. But uh, I'm going to have to set a reminder for myself that uh, I need to answer the question of what is chewing gum made from for the next Ask Fuzzy column. So keep an eye out for that one, folks. All right, let's move on now to the next Ig Nobel Prize. This is the Ig Nobel for Physics. Yes, the Physics Prize that makes you laugh and makes you think. Well, in fact, I should announce the Physics one with the Ig Nobel that was also put forward for Kinetics um, because these two pieces kind of go together. So the Physics Prize went to scientists for their paper for their work conducting experiments to learn why pedestrians do not constantly collide with other pedestrians. And then the Kinetics Prize went to a group of scientists for their work conducting experiments to learn why pedestrians do sometimes collide with other pedestrians. Uh, so I quite like this one indeed. Let's start with the physics side of things. Um, comes from a paper called Physics-Based Modelling and Data Representation of Pairwise Interactions Among Pedestrians. Basically, people uh, walking around, other people, how do they interact on a one-to-one basis? And so, uh, taking from the abstract from this paper, they, these scientists studied uh, pedestrian-pedestrian interactions from observational experimental data in diluted pedestrian crowds, so low numbers, And what they found was, while in motion, pedestrians are actually continuously adapting their walking path, trying to preserve a range of things, mutual comfort distances, uh, which have probably changed given COVID at the moment. Uh, Mutual comfort is a little bit uh, larger in distance than it used to be. Uh, And they're also trying to avoid collisions while they do it. Um, And so utilising this... uh, high-quality, high-statistic data set that they have, which was actually based on several millions of real-life trajectories acquired from six months of pedestrian tracks in a train station, these scientists developed a quantitative model which was capable of addressing interactions in the case of uh, two people trying to avoid colliding with each other. And so they modelled these interactions in terms of both long-range, so sight-based, using your eyes to navigate around someone, and short-range, which still using your eyes, but that's an opportunity for avoiding hard contact, immediate contact there. Uh, And they came up with a model around that. And yeah, they basically found through this modelling that uh, humans are continually re-evaluating where they're moving uh, to, to make sure that they're not colliding with anyone um, around this work, which is really interesting when you then move to the second prize that I talked about, the Kinetics Prize, about um, when uh, coll- sometimes colliding with other pedestrians. And this comes from a paper called Mutual Anticipation Can Contribute to Self-Organisation in Human Crowds. So it's basically identifying a similar thing to what the physics scientists did, that people uh, are looking at other people, they're working out what they're going to do and adjusting their gait accordingly, their steps, their movement, their motion. 
But this paper highlighted that uh, it's mutual anticipation, so both people working, that helps to contribute to that self-organisation. And what I liked about this study was they looked into initially why how pedestrians walk, um, and they're in a bit more general setting, but they kind of found that people form directional lanes. So if you're going heading north along a path, uh, there's a bunch of people heading south, you'll kind of naturally form into a north-flowing lane, um, and the people heading south will form into a south-flowing lane. And it, it's quite interesting, some of their studies that, that see this. And I, I feel like you can kind of see this at... Um, uh, big in-person events. Remember those folks, big in-person events, uh, things like um, the uh, the multicultural festival. My gosh, that was a mass of humans together, wasn't it? But, uh, but what they were seeing there was um, people moving about in different ways. And yeah, you could certainly find a lane going one way. And then if you wanted to turn around, you probably had to find a bunch of people moving the other way there. And so they they plotted that sort of movement. But then they also conducted an experiment, these scientists, where some pedestrians were asked to walk while using their phones and other people still without phones to see whether this distraction interfered with the ability to anticipate and react to your neighbour's motions. And what they found, interestingly, was that it affected not just the people walking with their phones, but also the people walking without phones. Uh, So even though the people walking without phones could see where they were going, they could see the other people in front of them, it kind of showed that these avoidance manoeuvres that we do as people are something that's cooperative. It's not just something that we do on our own. We do it by interacting with another human, whether consciously or subconsciously. It is that genuine interaction. And so when you're faced with someone on their phone, you can't have that interaction with them. And it's also kind of harder to predict where they're actually going to go because they're on their phone. They're not necessarily exhibiting normal behaviours. So some really interesting research there. I quite like it on um, the things that just govern our every day as we walk around each other and uh, potentially could have uh, some implications for how we walk around in the future. Maybe they'll start banning people walking around on their phones in uh, in high high traffic areas so that uh, you can actually follow where people are going rather than just predicting on their phones. Hmm. Something to ponder for the future. Well, I've just got one more Ig Nobel Prize to cover. And uh, look, it's a bit of a naughty one. It's the Medicine Prize. And uh, well, what they cover, I'm going to tell you, but uh, I'm going to have a short break before we do. Benfold's philosophy. Benfold's five, in fact. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. The time is 11.54, which means we've got six minutes left until uh, this show comes to its end. And uh, one last Ig Nobel Prize. Yes, that's what we've been talking about today on air, folks, is the uh, Ig Nobel, which is uh, prizes that first make you laugh and then make you think. And... uh, The final prize that we finish off today with is the Ig Nobel for Medicine. And uh, this went to uh, some scientists uh, who demonstrated that uh, sexual orgasms can be as effective as decongestant medicines at improving nasal breathing. That's right, folks. Intercourse can help you breathe through your nose. Uh, For this prize, they followed 18 heterosexual couples who were all healthcare workers or partners of healthcare workers, and they assessed their nasal function before 
Intercourse immediately after, 30 minutes later, one hour later, and five hours later. So a series of tests around that one. And what they found was that uh, the couples were trained with a device to measure nasal airflow. Uh, Sorry, yes. And so the couples were given that nasal airflow uh, measurement. And uh, what they found was that it can act as a decongestant for up to 60 minutes in patients that have nasal obstruction. Three hours after, it was back to the baseline level, whereas uh, the use of nasal decongestant spray uh, at three hours nasal breathing was still significantly improved. So it's quite interesting, but uh, the the scientists do warn uh, at this point in time for people to be wary of these results, um, because while interesting, uh, these results uh, may not be generalisable at this point in time. So because partially because the participants were all healthcare professionals, uh, so it wasn't necessarily an equally distributed population. Uh, so basically, I think the scientists were recruiting their friends in this one. Um, the other part is that the uh, rhinometric measurements, basically the nose breathing type measurements, were obtained at the participants' home by themselves. And so compliance and accuracy in measurement can't be guaranteed. But the improvement in nasal function was considered significant in participants with that pre, uh, pre-existing nasal obstruction. So if they had a blocked nose, it did unblock it. How, though, is not entirely clear at this point in time. One of the scientists hypothesizes there might be a number of factors in play. Could be excitement, physical exercise, hormonal changes that happen after intercourse, a whole lot of different things in there indeed that they could consider. So certainly some further research there, but uh, really interesting stuff to consider that uh, something that we uh, use a chemical for, for three hours of nose unblocking, could be unblocked with an hour based on uh, physical activity. So there you go. And one final uh, Nobel Prize that... uh, was given out um, was uh, to a 1971 study. And I love it when they delve into historical studies as, as part of the Nobels. And this was a new method of cockroach control on submarines, which you know, potentially might be important at this point in time as we start to develop our new subs here in Australia. Uh, this was actually done over in the US Navy where uh, they were having some trouble with expensive and difficult treatments of submarines. And so they went to a... Um, a more common uh, treatment that was used uh, on food insecticides and that sort of thing and treated the subs with that and found that, uh, yeah, that was rather an effective way to uh, get rid of the cockroaches off the submarine. So there you go, folks. That wraps up the Ig Nobel Prizes for 2021. Fantastic uh, stories of uh, how you can uh, use science in fun and interesting ways, but also to make people think. Very exciting stuff indeed. And at that point, it basically wraps up the show for another week here on uh, Fuzzy Logic. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you do enjoy listening to our work, then make sure to download the podcast. You can find that at fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com or you can also uh, find it on iTunes there. Just search for Fuzzy Logic. And we are the show with the autumn leaf. 
As I said earlier, if you do have any science questions that you want answered or anything that you want to put to us here at Fuzzy Logic, just email askfuzzy at zoho.com. That's askfuzzy at zoho.com. And uh, you can see our Ask Fuzzy column every week in the Canberra Times. Coming up over the next few weeks, we've got some other amazing uh, Fuzzy Logic shows lined up for you. Rod uh, is on next week and has lined up a great scientist to have a chat to, as he always does. And then in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be talking to some geoscientists from Geoscience Australia because we're going to into Earth Sciences Week. That's right. From the, uh, I believe it's the 10th of August to the 17th is Earth Sciences Week, which is super exciting to celebrate. And I've got some um, fantastic geoscientists from right here in Canberra who are coming to share their work with us. So make sure you stay tuned in a couple of weeks for that one, folks. We are here on Fuzzy Logic every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. for your science on a Sunday across Canberra. And my name is Broderick Matthews. It's been a pleasure to have you joining us with us once again for this week's episode of Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.